The world of real estate investing is always changing. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, attorney and author Natalia Willett Grice has the expertise to provide valuable guidance on how to navigate the complexities of real estate investing. This is the Legacy Academy. Hello and welcome to the Legacy Academy. I'm your host, Justin Grice, the COO of LCO Law. And with me is my wife, attorney Natalia Willett Grice, the owner of LCO Law and the author of three great real estate investment books. Now she's written about uh, Florida tax deeds, foreclosures, and her latest book on how to manage Florida rentals. Now today we're going to be talking about a 1985 Florida Supreme Court landmark ruling that has a major impact on real estate contracts before and after closing. So today we're going to be discussing the Johnson v. Davis and how it can affect you and your real estate deals. So, Natalia, for those of, of the listeners who aren't aware of this ruling, can you just give a brief summary of the Johnson v. Davis ruling? Sure. So, Johnson versus Davis involved a dispute between a buyer and a seller, um, and it was actually not a dispute that was related to a closing. It was before a closing. So, it had to do with uh, the buyers wanting to get their security deposit back. When they had gone to inspect the property, the sellers were present. Uh, they had kind of looked up around the roof and um, the ceiling. They noticed a couple of interesting things. And when they asked the sellers about it, the sellers were like, nope, there's no issue whatsoever. Um, the buyers come to find out later before closing that the roof did uh, happen to have a history of leaking. Oh, wow. <laughs> the sellers hadn't disclosed it. And so the Florida Supreme Court in Johnson versus Davis decided that even though this was an as-is as contract, um, that the, if the seller had actual knowledge as to facts that materially affected the value of the property, then those facts had to be actually disclosed. If not, then buyers could have a claim for fraudulent inducement. And in that case, it, it kind of directed that the um, deposit be returned to the buyers. So that case then resulted in... Um, whole history of subsequent cases which have essentially eroded the concept of caveat emptor for largely for residential real estate contracts. Right. And so for those of you who don't know, caveat emptor is just uh, the Latin term, I'm assuming, right? Yes. And it, it's buyer beware. Buyer beware. All right. So now how did the Johnson v. Davis ruling establish new precedents or clarify existing laws related to real estate contracts? So, um, you know, it, it was like the first very clearly stated case in which the Florida Supreme Court said, you know, caveat emptor has its limits, right? Um, the, sure, buyers always should have a duty to inspect the property that they're going to buy. Yeah. Uh, that's you know, that's the em concept of caveat emptor. But there's also now the affirmative duty to disclose when sellers have actual knowledge of those material uh, issues that can affect the value of the property. Okay, so how do you prove something like that? that that's something that's always kind of been, <laughs> you know, at the top of my mind is how do you prove that the seller actually knew about these things? Well, it's a it's a very high burden, right? Uh, it's It depends on facts and circumstances, which is why these cases can become extremely um, costly to both parties very, very quickly. Sure. Um, but I'll give you an idea based on kind of like the existing case law. So if, for example, the seller had built their own home, right, like they were the ones that put everything up and 
uh, or they made substantial improvements to the properties themselves, not using an independent contractor, then there's going to be more of a placement of, well, you, you knew (laughs) because you built it kind of a thing versus, you know, occasions where the sellers have had the property for a very little amount of time, or if it had to do with leak issues, it was, you know, not known to the sellers because they only owned it during Florida's dry season, like December, uh, you know, January, February, those kind of months. So it's very, very fact specific. Um, and it rarely is it going to be something that is is plain and obvious to everybody. But um, if I could say, you know, as far as like what helps you as a seller is making sure that you always encourage your buyers to have an independent inspection done okay. <laughs> prior to the sale. Excellent. Excellent. Now, how can a real estate professional, your agents, your brokers, help their buyers or sellers make sure that the clients are compliant with the disclosure requirements? So if you are you know, a, a selling agent, which represents the buyers, you want to make sure that your buyers are asking all the questions that they can about the condition of the property, right? If you don't ask, how, how can you put that burden, shift over that burden to the sellers of disclosure, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're curious about it, if you see something that maybe um, doesn't look quite as clear, or maybe you have an inspection report and they're not sure, ask, right? There you go. Um, If you are a seller, right, we've got these standard form seller disclosures. They're not actually the best disclosures. So I would encourage sellers, um, agents to go ahead and do their own kind of inquiry with their their, um, sellers on, especially on things that really do materially affect the value of the property. So we're not talking about like aesthetic things or little nicks and knacks in like uh, counters or, uh, you know, your, um, what's it called? Like the doorknob has a nick or anything. No, those are not materially affecting the value of the property. I'm talking about like the roof, the foundation, the walls, electrical issues, windows, plumbing, um, pools, right? Like those really do materially affect the value of the property. So those are things that as a selling um, agent, you want to make sure that there's disclosures involved, same as a listing agent. Okay. All right. So now in what ways did the Johnson v. Davis case impact the expectations and the obligations of buyers and sellers after closing a a transaction? So, you know, these uh, the Florida Bar and the Florida Association of Realtors created in their contracts a clause as a response to Johnson versus Davis. It's usually in like paragraph 10 and then there's subsequent paragraphs on it all throughout the real estate contract about sellers having to disclose what they have actual knowledge of. Um, I would say that as a result of this lawsuit, there's always been more lawsuits uh, relating to like latent defects. So these are like latent time discoveries. Again, you know, maybe something closed in January of a year and the rainy season came about in like August and now they see that like, wow, there's a leak in the roof Mm. uh, and nobody knew about it or at least it didn't seem to be known. Um, and depending on what like a roofer might find, they might say, you know, they should have known about this, right? Um, or, or they probably knew about this. And it's a very fact-based kind of a thing. So like I said, very expensive. Um, sometimes circumstantial evidence is enough wow. to, to say to put in that, you know, sellers did know. Um, but many times it's actually not enough, right? Because courts don't say, okay, the circumstances showed this, but if the circumstances don't directly show actual knowledge, 
that that court will not make the next leap forward and next leap forward with good. other circumstantial evidence. <laughs> that, that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's very unlikely to happen. It's a there's slippery actually, slope. Yeah, there's a case called Slitter versus Elias in which you know that one said you know the seller's evidence reflects the direct evidence uh, presented at trial didn't support and in fact contradicted the buyer's circumstantial evidence described below in which the buyer contends that they show that the seller had knowledge of the defects, right? So, if, like, if you were a seller and you're testifying, like, I actually did not know anything about this, and the seller is just the circumstantial evidence, right? The seller's testimony, honest and, and truthful testimony, is weighs more heavily than the buyer's presumptions about what a seller did in fact know or didn't know. So, it, because it is so fact-based, <laughs> so testimonially-based, and what you see there and what you don't see there, uh, like I said, these these can be quite, quite expensive for everybody involved. That's why disclosure is key in advance to avoid the litigation. Okay. So does Johnson v. Davis, like the ruling itself, does it only pertain to like structural defects? Or what about like the crazy neighbor thing? I mean, I know that if, if I'm buying a house and they know that the neighbor is a terror, you've seen, yeah, everybody has seen these neighbors, you know? Um <laughs> Is there any, you know, is it just pertaining to the structural? It's it's pertaining to the structure, okay? Because we don't have, as sellers, as property owners, we have absolutely no control over what other parties do. And the courts can't impute a duty on us for what other individual uh, beings do in relation to the property. Now, if you had tenants in your own property that caused damage, then you, you have that duty as like your tenant's being um, directly related to you contractually, right? Mm -hmm. But you know that your uh, that your neighbor is kind of like the a hole who likes to shine bright lights into your house. I mean, like you don't really have much control over that. Um, should you disclose that? I would say you know go ahead and disclose it. But I can't see a Johnson versus Davis uh, ruling coming out of that because it's not a material defect to the property. It's just. Bad it's a, it's a societal defect. It's a societal <laughs> defect. Yes. Awesome. All right. So, what legal protections do buyers have if the seller intentionally conceals defects? So, if the seller uh, does actually intentionally con conceal material defects, right? So, again, they have to be material, meaning they actually affect in substantial form the value of the property. So, we're not talking aesthetics again. Um, but in that case, you have a cause of action under Johnson versus David, which is called like fraudulent misrepresentation. True. So that's, you know, like they uh, they told me something that wasn't true to induce me to take action to purchase this piece of property is essentially it. Okay. Well, uh, we, we talked a little bit about the caveat emptor thing. Where, where does that begin and end, you know, that they have, you know, the buyer themselves have the, um, like the duty to, yeah, the yeah, duty to, to, to inspect and to all inspect that. And all that so, right, exactly. so the reality is it's a gray scale. There's no point where I could say like, it starts right here and it ends right here. The buyers in real estate transactions have a duty to inspect the property. If they waive that duty, they're falling closer into the caveat emptor territory, right? If like sellers give you an opportunity to inspect and you choose not to, you're gonna have a hard time trying to make a Johnson versus Davis case against a seller. 
Similarly, Sellers now, after Johnson versus David, which is almost a 40-year-old case, came out when I was born. <laughs> but like this Johnson versus Davis matter now makes it so that if you're a seller and you have actual knowledge of something going on in your property with those bigger aspects that I mentioned, right? Like the foundation and the roof and electrical, etc. You have to tell your buyer about it. Afterwards, if your buyer decides that, you know, with you having disclosed and they still want to buy and they still want to close, okay, great. Now you have it. Like you you keep that <laughs> disclosure, that written disclosure, because that's going to protect you against the Johnson versus Davis uh, claim. You you can't protect a buyer from choosing to to make a decision as to buying property that's got issues. You can protect yourself by saying, listen, I told you what the issues were and you still chose to buy. Right, right. Um, now, does this ruling affect commercial real estate as well or is this strictly residential? So for the most part, Johnson versus Davis and the case all that has come from it tends to stick to being uh, about residential real estate sales. That's not to say that fraudulent misrepresentation can't be an attempted claim in commercial. It's just not as easy um, and it's already difficult to do it in residential, but it's, so it's even harder to establish a claim for fraudulent misrepresentation in commercial transactions because in commercial transactions, the courts already perceive the parties differently. So there's a judicial perspective that the, the parties are on more equal footing. They're both business entities. They're entering this into cool heads. It's not emotional like the purchase of a residence. Um, and so because these are also a lot more heavily negotiated contracts, there's more of a balance of uh, leaning toward caveat mTOR than towards the seller having to disclose. I still recommend, obviously, if you have a commercial transaction, you're a seller, you disclose everything that you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, how can our investor listeners make sure that they're compliant with all of these disclosure requirements from the Johnson v. Davis? Because they, a lot of our investors um, could be, you know, never like entering the property, you know? Mm -hmm. You yep. know what I mean? They could do fix and flip. So they go in, boom, flip it, done. Or they may, maybe they're not even flipping it. Maybe they're just a middleman. Yeah, it, yeah, wholesalers, right? That's one thing that comes up. So I would say, like, number one, uh, when you acquire property as a real estate investor, have an inspection done. Get an inspection report. You know, that way you're not, like, especially if you're not in the property, um, you are basing it on a third party professional inspector to analyze what's there. And you can even forward that report over to the prospective buyer. Mm -hmm. as like, here's what, here's what I knew. Right. Um, you need to make sure that you are like logging whether you've ever seen the property or not as part of your regular business records. Okay. Okay. That is also going to assist you against any of these claims because claims are based on actual knowledge. Every bit of case law out there has dismissed any sort of trying to imply knowledge or impute knowledge. It has to be actual. Um, and I, I mean, I would say, you know, your disclosures need to be thorough. So don't just check boxes. Like if you say yes on something, explain okay. what that means. Uh, if you've never been in the property, include that in your disclosures. And, uh, you know, as far as like, protecting yourself uh, as to what the buyer does, ask for a copy of their inspection report, the buyer's inspection report, because you will definitely use that to defend yourself in prospective litigation. Right, right. Okay. Now, 
how do sellers protect themselves from post, uh, post-closing disputes related to issues that they were unaware of? So if you're unaware of issues, right? Like first and foremost, your defense is that I didn't know, mm-hmm. right? Um, when you own property, uh, you've got to be, I mean, if you're like, if you're an investor and you buy property that's already in crappy condition, right? Because your, your goal is to flip it, to fix it up and flip it. Just be mindful that the more work you do on that property yourself, the more liability you're creating for issues that come after the fact that may be resulting from like your poor craftsmanship. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So, so in to that extent, right, if you do the actual manual labor involved in in getting these properties uh, improved, you are increasing your risk of a Johnson versus Davis claim being successful after the fact. If you stick to using third-party licensed contractors to do all of the issues, one, you can fall back on their uh, warranties if there are any issues that arise, right? And then that warranty you can kind of like forward over to your buyer. Um, And second of all, you know, if you are somebody that sticks to using those third-party contractors, you're not going to be deemed to have higher knowledge about like what's a plumbing issue, what's an electrical issue, you know, what's like a roof issue or a tile issue, um, so I would say, it, you know, stick to what you know. If you're a real estate investor, if you're really great at like closing deals, then stick to that. Leave the, the contractor work to third-party contractors because what you think you're saving yourself by doing the work yourself is, is going to be so much less than the cost of litigation in a Johnson versus Davis claim. Right. Now, now speaking of third parties, what about inspectors, uh, appraisers, people like that? Say you have an inspection done Mm -hmm. and they didn't see an issue that, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a leak in the pool, you know, leaking into the ground or whatever the case may be. Can they be held liable as well through a Johnson v. Davis claim? So I have seen that not so much appraisers, but inspectors have gotten named in these Johnson versus Davis cases as defendants. Right. So usually inspectors have a limit on the like on their report that says like we'll cover up to blah 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 uh as part of the policy for whatever things that they uh, erroneously miscategorized when they were doing their inspection okay um appraisers on the other hand they don't really get named in those suits because they're making a market evaluation based on what they visually see as the condition of the property and say okay we think the value is this right it's based on what's actually openly visible and appraisers don't look at inspection reports they look at comparable sales in in the relative area okay to to make an assessment but appraisers can get used in litigation to make a determination as to whether like the value should have been less or should have been more based on what wasn't disclosed um inspectors right like they're uh, there have seen some inspection reports that are just really good for sellers in the sense that they say listen we know that there's uh, people out there that are contractors that like to, uh, after you close, they'll say, oh, this thing, you know, it's it, you're going to have to replace the whole thing, blah, 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 blah. When in fact, it should have, it, it's fine just being repaired for much less. They're just trying to get mon- more money out of you. Yeah. So be mindful of that. And they put that in their reports which is something that can also help a seller out in kind of like limiting the amounts of the claim because, you know, some unscrupulous people just want to make more money out of um, buyers who don't know any better. Yeah. 
And so and that fear of being yeah. sued. So I would sure. say, you know, if you're a buyer, like really thoroughly read your inspection reports. If there's something you don't understand, talk to the inspector about it. If there's something that you're raises an inquiry that says like, hey, you know, you should contact a plumber about this thing because they will put that in inspection reports or you should contact an electrician about this thing or, or like a roofer about this issue. You then as a buyer need to go and make that extra step, right? Either ask about it to the seller, either go and get an, an additional like roofer to inspect or electrician to inspect, but don't just sit on it and then close and then eight months later, nine months later, think that you're going to have a slam dunk case because you found out there was an electrical issue there that disclosure from the report is putting an affirmative duty back on you as a buyer to, mm -hmm. to see what needs to be done based on the flags that they raised right okay now is there any type of waiver or anything like that that you can put in a contract that says hey we had the inspection blah 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 uh, we agree not to sue based on a johnson v davis thing <sighs> Not quite, <laughs> because you can't waive fraud. Sure. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so Johnson versus Davis is based on fraudulent misrepresentation, misrepresentation, so an actual intentional non-disclosure of known defects. And since you can't waive fraud, <laughs> right. uh, you can't get out of that. I I've seen people try it, uh, especially like in wholesaler agreements and things like that, but you can't get out of it that way. All right. All right. Now, what are the implications of the uh, Johnson v. Davis case on real estate transactions that involve distressed properties? You know, we have investors who uh, you see the signs out there. I buy sick homes or mm -hmm. buy houses in any condition. Yep. Um, yep. How does this affect them? So it's it's even more important to note, like as part of your regular business records as a real estate investor, how long you've owned the property, to what degree you were ever in the property, uh, to what degree you ever did any work on the property, every single name of every contractor licensed, licensed everyone that you use to work on the property, uh, any inspections that you've had on the property, like keep really good record document okay? everything document everything um because these distressed properties right if if a contractor does something to quote fix up the property let's say a roof okay roof is a typical thing that distressed properties need and you find out that um after the fact after the closing that the roofer didn't do the job properly right Again, if you use a third-party roofing company, you can provide that information to the buyer and say, listen, they have a warranty, blah, blah, blah. Here, go make your claim because I didn't know about this. I'm not a roofer, right? Mm -hmm. um, I knew that when the property was purchased, it had a crappy roof. Here's the inspection of that. But that doesn't have anything to do with the new roof that was installed <laughs> right. by this third party. Sure. So um, I would say, you know, documenting as much as possible when you're buying distressed properties. And if you do get an inspector beforehand, go ahead and like forward that over and say, here's the inspection of the property when I acquired it. And here's what the contractors that worked on it after and what they did. Right. Okay. And then, and then again, the buyers are uh, able to make their decision as to whether they want to proceed or not. That's the like assumption of risk at that point. Excellent. All right. So lastly, what are three things that buyers, sellers, investors, and agents must know about Johnson versus Davis disclosures to protect them from future litigation. So number one, really simple. As to anything that you actually know, 
just go ahead and disclose, okay? So it's better to be embarrassed than to be served with a lawsuit or a letter of demand. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> to encourage inspections from your buyers, okay? The, the, I know some sellers think that like, oh, I'm getting a better deal if they don't get to inspect. But the reality is that when you give them an opportunity to inspect, that can be a defense for you, especially if they refuse to do any inspections. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number three, like if your buyer does an inspection before you close, get a copy of that inspection report. Um, and is that the not final typical? Walkthrough. No, it's not typical. It's not like it's not shared between the parties unless they ask. Really good realtors, which is why I really encourage parties to have realtors whenever possible. Really good realtors are going to ask for it so that you as a seller get a copy. Um, but, you know, it, when it's done without realtors or when it's done with kind of sometimes lazier realtors, you're not going to get somebody that's going to like affirmatively ask for that for you as a sure. seller. So it's really important to get those reports ahead of time because then you both know what's known mm-hmm. <laughs> before it closes. Right. And they can't say, oh, well, I didn't know, right? Uh, so you want to be able to have that in your back pocket ahead of time. And then if I could give a bonus one. Bonus. We yes, like bonuses. A bonus one. So if you're doing as-is contracts as a real estate investor and they get their report um, and the report says, hey, there's an issue with like this wall or there's an issue with this electrical thing. Don't make offers to repair. Okay. Why? Because it's as is. It's disclosed. So now they know. And if you repair and the repair ends up not working out very well, now you have additional liability for the repairs gone wrong. Sure. <laughs> so that's, that's great. That is why I would recommend that as a bonus. Well, you know, because me... I know as personally, if they said, oh, yeah, here's the report and there's an electrical issue, my first my first instinct is to be like, okay, well, we'll get that fixed so you don't have to adjust the price or whatever. Yeah. Nope. But that's, nope. so that's really don't good. Don't make an offer to repair. If anything, you can be like, here, here's like 200 bucks um, for whatever you want to do about it. Okay. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast application. And then tune in every Monday to get more tips on how to avoid investing's legal pitfalls and take your real estate business to the next level. You can also find us online at lcolawfl.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Legacy Academy FL.